ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Joshua chapter 11. We'll be covering 11 and 12, but for your benefit, I'm not going to read all of 11 and 12. I'll read uh, portions of chapter 11 this morning. But before we get into that, uh, something that a few of you are unaware of, we've uh, brought in a new staff member here at Village Church. Someone's going to help us with our uh, theological training, the core classes that we offer here at Village Church. I don't know where he is, uh, if, whether he's in here or whether he's out there. So what I want to do is it's kind of like a Where's Waldo? All right. If you can find Chris Bolt, you can introduce yourself to him. And now here's the great thing about Village Church. Some of you are very overbearing in the way that you say hello. All right. And so Chris has got to endure all that this morning. So, you know, you just just be as huggy as you want to be, uh, as inappropriate as some of you are. Some of you just make so many inappropriate content um, uh, comments when you're introducing yourself to someone. Just lay it on thick this morning. All right. So if you can find our new guy, Chris Bolt, uh, introduce yourself to him. We're glad to have him here. I'm glad to have him here. Uh, but over the first 10 chapters of Joshua, we've looked at the promises of God and the command of God for Israel to be strong, to be courageous, to not be afraid in the face of their enemies that are going to stand before them. What we're going to see this morning isn't much different than what we've already seen. Enemies are going to come against the nation of Israel. God's going to say, don't be afraid of them. Not a single one of them are going to be able to stand in front of you. And Israel defeats yet another surge of enemies coming against them in their conquest of the promised land. And so last Sunday you saw the southern conquest in the promised land. Chapters 11 and 12 cover and then summarize in chapter 12 all of the nations that fell in the northern conquest of Israel. But today the real focus of what I want to, us to see is that the promises that God gives for the favor of his people are always to the detriment of his enemies. And so the judgment of God that is very much seen throughout all of Joshua on the enemies of God is seen in a clear scope. And so we struggle, though, sometimes as a people to not just discuss the judgments of God on those that are the wicked, but rather we struggle even to stomach some of the realities of God's judgment on sin, so much so that it's to the detriment of our very relationship with God. If you're not worshiping God for all that he is and you only want to focus on those attributes that you find uh, palatable, then you will always have a reduced and really improper form of worship where God is concerned. But the fact of the matter is, is what the book of Joshua has told us so far is that the promises of God for Israel carry with them a judgment against the nations that already happen to be in the promised land. And whenever we ignore or neglect it, we're not doing ourselves any favor, nor are we doing the world around us a favor. Rather, we're doing it a grave disservice. And the disservice keeps us from learning important aspects of the attributes of God, which will always reduce your worship of God for all that he is for us, as well as in eradicating evil and judging the wicked in this world creates within us a partial view of God that also prevents us from testifying to the world around us of the whole counsel of God. And this is evident in the way that we obscure some aspects of Scripture uh, from unbelievers. 
Because we believe that if we talk about these texts of Scripture that unbelievers might struggle with, then it will stifle or limit our evangelism in the world. And that really is an immature and even foolish thing to do, as God has not called us to market Him as some sort of brand that makes Him more attractive to the world than He would be without us finessing His image for Him. God has not called His people in any way to go into the public relations category where explaining away some of His actions in Scripture that we find less palatable or those around us might not find palatable in their lives and in their view of what they think God is. Rather, we must view God for all that He is and through faith treasure all that He is, worship Him for all that He is, and proclaim the whole truth of God to the world around us for their benefit. Because the promises of God are to be delighted in for all who believe. And the judgment of God is to be feared by anyone who does not believe and would rebel against Him. And so I want to start reading in Joshua 11 verse 1. Text tells us, when Jabin, the king of Hatzor, heard this, he sent to Jobab, the king of Maiden, and the king of Shimron, and to the king of Aksaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in Naphoth Dor to the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon, in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number, like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And, jo and the Lord said to Joshua, you got any idea what the Lord's going to say to Joshua? Same thing he's always saying to Joshua. Do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misrephoth Maim and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Number one this morning, you need to understand that God's promises are a judgment against the wicked. God's promises are a judgment against the wicked. The promises of God are certain and they demand judgment. And so when you're reading through the book of Joshua, understand that God's made promises to Israel, but through the promises that God has made to Israel, it's going to be to the detriment of the nations that already happen to be in the promised land. And so any land that Israel takes, when the enemies of God stand in the path of Israel, those promises are not a benefit to those people. And it's pretty clear from all the narratives that we've read so far, they've all fallen, they've all died, they've all been killed. But here, the unique aspect of the narrative in Joshua chapter 11 is the way that the word picture is drawn. And he draws this word picture. He says, when all of these other nations from the northern territory gathered together, when they stood in front of Israel, it was a number that was a great horde as the seas cover the shores. Excuse me, as the sand covers the shores of the seas. 
And so we haven't had that type of descriptive language about the enemies of Joshua thus far. So this is leading us to believe that since he uses such terminology, this is the highest number of enemies that they've come against, the highest number of warriors that they have stood against. And if you're the nation of Israel standing against them, you're going to be tempted to be intimidated. Anytime you see a command in Scripture like, don't be afraid of them, you can know that the reason that command is there is because there is a temptation to be very fearful in this instance. And so this was the greatest battle that they've had thus far, the greatest number of people that's accounted for in the book of Joshua thus far are standing against them, yet God says the exact same thing that He has always said in the book of Joshua before. Don't be afraid. I'm going to deliver them into your hand. And guess what? That's exactly what happens. But beyond that, something else interesting happens that if you were a tactician, a strategist where battle and war is concerned in that day, if a nation has chariots and the other nation does not, the nation with chariots are going to win gives you a great advantage in battle. The other side doesn't stand a chance. Same thing. If the other nation has horses that are going to gallop into battle, you have no horses that are going to lead your leaders into battle, you're probably going to lose because you are a lesser force against those people. And God tells Joshua, as soon as they all fall before you, as soon as you defeat them, hamstring their horses, which means you're going to cut the back of their leg in such a way that those horses are not going to have the ability to gallop into battle any longer. And on top of that, I want you to take all of the chariots that they have standing against you, I want you to burn every single one of them because I want the glory out of every fight is God's point. He doesn't want the nations of the world to look at Israel and say, oh, they won because they were able to get the horses. Oh, they won because they were able to get the chariots. No, he wants the world to know Israel won because they had the favor of God. Israel won because they were the recipients of the promise of God and the Canaanites were not the recipients of the promise of God. But therein lies a problem with the way that many of us view Scripture. I've talked about this before, but maybe you weren't here. Many people treat Scripture as though between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew, God had a lobotomy. And all of a sudden he woke up one day and he said, you know, all this judgment that I've been bringing against my enemies, i got to stop that nonsense. People are starting to think I'm a mean guy. I know I'm going to totally change the way that I view the world. I'm going to totally change the way that I interact with the world. Now I'm going to be a super nice guy, so nice that I'm going to send my own son to teach them about me, and then my son's going to die for their sins. And it's like we look at the Bible and we're like, Phew, let's not talk about that guy in the Old Testament. Phew, that's a rough one. But the fact of the matter is, is that when you understand the total congruity of the new and the old covenants, that these covenants, even in the narratives, share more in common than they do not. God called Israel to take the land that God had reserved for His presence and for them. But sometimes we don't think through the commonalities between the way that the gospel works in the New Testament and exactly what God did in the Old Testament. God has still called His people into conquest by seeking and proclaiming the glory of His work and the promises by proclaiming His authority in the world and through the culmination of how all of everything that God did in the nation of Israel ultimately led up to the person and work of Jesus Christ in the gospel accounts. 
There is redemption in both the Old and the New Testament. There is judgment in both the Old and the New Testament, just as there has always been. The New Covenant, though, makes possible the remission of sins through repentance and faith by all who believe. But here's the deal. The Old Covenant did the same thing. The difference in the New Covenant is the Old Covenant made absolutely clear man is unable to live up to the call of God. And so all of the wrath that you see God pouring out on the Canaanites in the book of Joshua, do you know where it goes in the New Covenant? But see, here's the trick. It actually goes on two things. First one is the one that is Sunday school. Because in Sunday school, nine times out of ten, if you say Jesus, it's the right answer. All right? You got to know that if you went to Sunday school at all. All right? The wrath of God is poured out on Jesus for all who what? Believe. But here's the issue. Where does the wrath go for all who don't believe? The wrath of God for all who don't believe will still go on all who don't believe. Just as it did in the Old Testament. It's the exact same, but the grace of God for all who believe has been revealed to all people that if you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, who endured the wrath of God that you and I deserve, you repent of your sins, you trust in him, he will forgive you once for all. That's not just a promise to one nation now. It is a promise to both Jew and Gentile alike. So the question then must be, why do we struggle so much when we're talking about the absolute judgment of God even in the Old Testament? Those who repent of their sin have always been able to find the forgiveness of God in Old and New Testament. But those who refuse will fall under the wrath of God's judgment and Old and New Testament. This has always been the conquest of God. And here's the one key truth that helps you have a level head about all of it. God's judgment is always just. Always. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have to believe that because you experience the benefit of it, don't you? God's judgment poured out on his son. Justice for my sin is found. Jesus endured all of the wrath. That's the only just reason that there's no wrath left for me. God doesn't just excuse my sin. He doesn't just ignore my sin. He doesn't just sweep it under the rug to deal with on a rainy day when he's ready. No, he poured it full force onto his son, enduring it in my place. But for those who do not believe, judgment still remains for their sin. And over the past few years, we have seen that because of the image of God that is in every single person that is alive, there is a cry for justice when we see something has happened that we say that is wrong. I mean, think about the reality. If you see a child who is abused... 
and you see a sinner who is abusing that child, deep down in your soul, if you are not completely depraved, the reason that you look at that and you say, there must be justice, I want vengeance on that person. That is not a sinful desire in you. That is a God-given desire in you because that is what justice calls for and that is what God has always given. His judgment is an attribute that the gospel, because of its benefit for us as Christians, we are comfortable and joyous about. But like I asked earlier, what about those who reject Christ? Are you still comfortable and joyous about the wrath that they will necessarily endure just like the Canaanites have endured? The simple reality is that you cannot have the grace of the gospel without the wrath of God towards sin. You can't have one without the other. Jesus did not pay a light or theoretical payment to atone for your sin. Jesus endured the very wrath that we deserve. Therefore, to reject Christ is to reject the eternally given forgiveness of Jesus and to choose to eternally endure the wrath of God that is owed for your sin yourself. There's no arbitrary judgment. It is justice. It is just. Or to put it practically, it's a deserved wrath. This is the lens through which we must understand God's judgment on all the kingdoms represented by the Canaanites. Apologist Paul Copen points out that much of the law that we find in the book of Leviticus is to differentiate Israel from their Canaanite counterparts that they're defeating in the book of Joshua. Our understanding of morality flows directly from the law of God, even if it is just a common grace understanding. Think about what Leviticus uh, prohibits. Just a few examples. Incest, bestiality, child sacrifice, homosexuality, rape, gender bending, and on and on. These were sins that God brought judgment down on and warned his people that they must never practice or allow. But historians note that much of this was what was taking part in Canaan before Israel's conquest against them. We see evidence of this in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. It states that the wickedness of Canaan is what God was bringing judgment against. He tells Israel, don't say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. God has and always will judge sin. That is an unchangeable attribute of God's dealings with human beings. The Canaanites were responsible for the knowledge of God as you and I and everyone else is. And so you might retort, but what about people that don't know about God? Well, they don't exist. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 19, tells us that we all have the responsibility of the knowledge of God that will condemn us if we don't turn to God. 
Paul notes, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In other words, God has given a common grace to all people that when you go outside and you look at the wonder of creation around you, there is a revelation in that creation that there is a God, and if there is a God, I am responsible to that God, and I better find out some information about that God. According to the text, that if you go out there and you say, there is no God, does nothing to disqualify the fact that God has revealed himself to you. Why would you do that? Romans 1 also says that because of your unrighteousness, you suppress the truth. In other words, your very denial of God is rooted in your own sinfulness. The Canaanites understand this could not have the promises of God because the Canaanites would not have the promises of God. They refused. We must trust God with that reality if we're going to follow Him. And we must find joy in God's provident sovereignty over that reality. Because number two this morning, understand God's sovereignty is the guarantee of every promise. God's sovereignty is the guarantee of every promise. If you thought dealing with God's judgment is tough, skip down to verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Selah, meditate on that. It's not really a coffee cup verse. A couple of years ago, I found out that you could go on this website and in beautiful font, you could put whatever message you wanted. And so I found all the verses in the Bible like this one. All right. And I tried to convince my wife. I was like, honey, this is what we need to put in our dining room. Not those coffee cup inspirational chicken soup for the soul verses. Of, I have wonderful plans for you. You know, all that stuff. No, let's put some good judgment text on our wall in beautiful font. <laughs> You'll never believe what she said. No. Pray for me. She's not glorying in all the attributes of God. I just don't understand it. But when we come to verses like this, there's a great temptation that happens in everyone. And that is, I've heard so many people take these texts and do mental gymnastics with verses like this to make themselves feel more comfortable with what God is or isn't allowed to do with the free will of man. But the simplest thing to do with texts like this is to accept exactly what it states in light of all that we know about God from the rest of Scripture and interpret it exactly that way. Was God responsible for the sins of Canaan? No. Scripture is clear on that. Scripture is so clear that it says uh, God can't even tempt people with sin. Was God responsible for their sin? No. Again, Scripture is clear. But does God use sinners to bring about the purpose of His will to their detriment? Absolutely. Scripture is clear. There are many texts throughout the Bible as a whole that show us exactly what this text states, that God reigns over absolutely everything. Why did the Canaanites stand against Israel instead of saying, you can have this land? 
For the same reason that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh and sent plague after plague to Egypt because God wanted to show his judgment against sin and he hardened their hearts to play directly into his hand. I'm going to give you another example of the many that exist. One is in Genesis 50 verse 20. This presents to Joseph. He's explaining to one of his brothers at the very end of the book of Genesis why he isn't going to have all of his brothers killed. Because if you note, in Genesis chapter 50, if you don't know, in the story of the Old Testament, Joseph had risen to the second in command over all of Egypt. The only person that had more power in Egypt than Joseph was Pharaoh. But the road by which Joseph got there was a painful, difficult, and one filled with suffering. His brothers despised him so much that they were going to kill him. But instead, they sold him into slavery, faked his death, convinced the dad that he was dead, removing him from his family for everyone, forever. Uh, Joseph goes into slavery. While he's a slave, he's then unjustly accused of rape. Then an innocent man is sent to prison for more than a decade, suffering in the prisons of Egypt for a crime he did not commit in any way, shape, or form. And so decades of Joseph's life were sent in suffering. Then through a supernatural series of events, God frees him from prison, raises him to second in command of all of Egypt, and Joseph, through the supernatural wisdom that God gave him, saves the nation of Egypt from famine that God was going to curse the world with. But then through him being able to save Egypt, he also then saves the family of Israel so that we can even get to the book of Joshua where Israel is taking the promised land. And it was because of God's work in Joseph. And so at the end of Genesis 50, the family comes back together. Joseph saves his family and his brothers think, okay, now that we've brought dad, he's going to probably kill us all because of what we did to him. But in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph looks to his brother and he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is a fascinating thing about the sovereignty of God for Christians. Joseph looks at it and he says, is what you did wrong? Yeah. He goes as far in the Hebrew. He says it was absolute evil. What you did it's terrible. It was a curse that you brought on my life. But here's the amazing thing about what scripture teaches us about God. There are millions of people in this world every single day they seek evil. Whether it be through fraud, whether it be through abuse of all kinds of natures. I won't even be more specific than that. There are people that seek murder. There are people that are so evil, they are so depraved in this world that they value money over human life and they will kill to get more money. They will victimize as many people as possible. There are people that wake up every single day looking for new ways to blaspheme the very God who redeemed us through Jesus Christ. There are people that wake up every single day, they've not sought good, they've only sought evil, and the scripture says they support 
suppress the truth so much that they wake up seeking to invent new forms of evil that have never been thought of by a human being. What scripture teaches us, though, is that God is so sovereign that even in the face of wickedness, that would nauseate some of us to the point where we would vomit if it was put right in front of us, that that God that redeems us is so sovereign that he will somehow work every moment of evil to good. He is that good. He is that sovereign. How will he do it? I don't know. He didn't invite me to the staff meeting when he explained that. I don't know how he'll do it. But he promises that he will. And why do I trust such a promise? I mean, because I've been in ministry for so long, I've seen some things that some of you haven't seen. To where I lose sleep over it. And I look at some of the situations and I say, God, I don't know how you're going to work this to your good. But the greatest evil that has ever taken place in the world is the murder of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And three days later, God said, look at the good. Look at the good. How can I believe that God will work the good of Genesis 50, 20? I believe it because of everything that I've seen in Jesus Christ. Even for the Christian, that which comes into my life and I say, God, I don't want this in my life. I don't want to suffer in this season or for the rest of my days. I don't want this pain. I don't want this hurt. God sometimes will take things out of your life and my life. And I will look at that and I will say, God, I don't want that out of my life. I was enjoying that. (laughs) I want that to stay exactly where it was for me to continue to enjoy in perpetuity for the rest of my days. And God says, no, I'm going to take that out of your life. You can't have it. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, we look at that and we don't say good times. And we look at that and we say that hurts. We look at that and we say, I hate evil. We look at that and we say, I hate the sin. We look at that and say, I cannot wait until the day that this does not exist. And God says through every moment of it, trust me, I will take the evil and I will make it good. For our purposes this morning, the opposite of that is true as well. So if you are a follower of Jesus, here's the promise that you have through your faith in God, the Son, Jesus Christ. Everything will work together for good. Amazing. If you are not a follower of Jesus, for those that refuse to turn from sin, for those that rebel against God, for those that reject Jesus Christ, I need you to understand that even that which is good in your life will turn out for the bad for you. God's promises condemn the sinner. God does not harden the hearts of his people. God hardens the hearts of the wicked in order that the good will be to the benefit of his children. And this all happens to the judgment of the wicked. And we should never downplay that for any reason. 
The sovereignty of God then is the guarantee of all of the promises in the gospel. And this is difficult for some to accept. There was a time in my life where this was a very difficult reality for me to accept. It was very difficult for me to wrap my mind around. I'm not going to be lying to you and say I've totally wrapped my mind around how this works. I have not. But that's a good thing. Because that means God is smarter than me. That means that even though I am limited, God is unlimited. That means even though my wisdom isn't the best, God's wisdom is the best. Without the sovereignty of God over absolutely everything, I want you to understand that we would be sunk according to Scripture. It is the very sovereignty of God that the trustworthiness of the gospel rests. If God is not sovereign, with no caveats there, friends then how can you trust that his plan will be completed? If God is not sovereign, then there are risks that evil will win over good. Texts like Joshua 11.20 serve as opportunities for us to be reminded again and again about the trustworthiness of the promises of God. This is a reminder of the guarantee that there is no risk of failure with God. His will is always going to come to fruition, regardless of what happens in life, both that which I enjoy and that which I hate. Romans chapter 9 is a text that some people hate. It's because you don't like truth. Starting in verse 21, it responds to any argument against the notion that I've just shared. In part, Romans 9, the message starting in verse 21 is, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Friends, you have to trust God with His sovereignty, even when you can't wrap your mind around it. If you look at that text and you're just like, it's almost like if you've seen the film A Beautiful Mind with all these mathematical equations floating around you. If you read that text and you're just like that, and you're like, I just can't comprehend. Glory in that. Don't look at it and say, well, since I don't understand this, how can it be true? No, you can't understand it because you're not the potter. Don't do to Romans what you do to the book of Esther. Stop putting yourself in the seat of Esther in the book of Romans. You're not the potter. You're the clay. The glory is found in the reality that if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you're following him, then you are the one that is made for honorable use. And you glory and you say, what grace? Because I don't deserve that. Yes. Don't look at it and say, how dare he make some for dishonorable use? You know the kind of person that says that? The one that's made for dishonorable use. When you read a text like this and you can't wrap your mind around it, praise God that he can. 
God has the authority and power to bring about his purposes in the ways that he sees fit. And that's the point of the text. He is the authority and he can be trusted with that authority. That's what the gospel of Jesus reveals to us. We can trust that God worked to give the nation of Israel the promised land because God's works are always moral. Morality exudes from God, and he always does that which is righteous every single time. Why would he choose, though, to give any human the benefit of his reign? That's the question we must ask. I'll tell you why. Because God sees fit to be gracious. And what great news, because he doesn't have to. I don't deserve it. But it gives me grace anyway. Apart from his sovereignty, though, you will have the yin-yang battle between good and evil with no assurance of who will win. And here's the deal. That's just silly. That's not what the Bible presents to us. That's foolishness. You want to know how I know that? Because God always wins. He will always win. He has no risk of defeat. He's not a risk-taking God. He is a sovereign God who will always receive the glory, which reveals to me the amazing truth, number three, God's enemies will never win. God's enemies will never win. You want to be on the right side of history? Be on God's side. Because outcomes are important. Let's be honest. We don't do the right thing as Christians because it's the right thing. When you say something like that, two things happen. You kind of anoint yourself as a messianic symbol because you're so good. But then number two, morality terminates on itself. And morality is not meant to terminate on itself. It's to go to the worship and praise of God. I do the right thing because God's going to reward me in glory. That's why I do the right thing. I do the right thing because God has rewarded me with faith in Jesus Christ. I do the right thing because God can't be defeated. I do the right thing because when all of humanity stood against God and killed his son, he said, that's fine. He's just going to get up in three days and beat you anyway. I do the right thing because God defines the right thing and God always wins and God will always win and God is never at risk of being defeated. The same thing that the Canaanites fell under, the wrath of an eternal God, is the thing that all who reject Christ and seek evil will fall under in this world. This section means that the enemies that looked as though they could stand against Israel never had a chance. Just as God said. God is always victorious. History reveals this, experience reveals this, and ultimately, as I said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ shows that death can't even defeat our eternal God. When considering the enemies of God and those who are not God's people, we must understand, yes, they are God's enemies. There is a tension that we feel in that. And here's the tension. You want to rightly express the hope of the gospel... You want to rightly express God's amazing love that is revealed in the work of Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection. But what do we do with the truth that God stands against those who sin against them? Because it's revealed over and over in Scripture that He does. Do we downplay one to the detriment of the other? So do you downplay God's wrath 
so that grace looks better? Do you downplay grace so that God looks more wrathful? Neither. Should we try to explain away the harsh truths so that we can greater magnify the truths that are more comforting and make us seem more compassionate in the eyes of the world? Fact is, just as Jeremiah 18.8 states, when people turn away from evil to the grace of God, do you know what they find? They find forgiveness. Here's what Jeremiah 18.8 says. If that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from evil... I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And so the enemies of God can find the grace of God and become the people of God. You know how I know that? Because that's my story. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that's your story. God didn't look down from heaven and say, man, you know, you're so valuable. I need you on my team. You're so good. No, you were an enemy of God. And you received the grace of God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and through your repentance, through the grace of God, you became a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the story of every single person that has ever turned from sin. It's the gospel reality. But here's the question. Why turn away from evil at all? Why is grace so amazing? Grace is not amazing Because when you become a Christian, you find all the friends you've ever wanted. Grace isn't amazing because you find a new family that you can be a part of. Grace isn't amazing because you're going to get some leadership principles that are really going to help you in life. Grace is not amazing because life just becomes better with Jesus. Friends, grace is amazing Because we deserve the eternal wrath of God in hell forever. That is why grace is amazing. Those other things might be included, but they are not the reason grace is amazing. Grace is amazing because I deserve the wrath. And anything else is less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reality of judgment is what turns us to the grace of God. All who stood before Israel in Canaan were unrepentant, wicked sinners. And they fell under the wrath of God. And here's the deal. Our modern era finds us in a place where we struggle to stomach that reality. But nothing has changed. Romans 11, starting in verse 22, states the clear truth. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Pause there. Because here's how most discipleship goes in 2023. You cut that in half. Why? Because you like the kindness of God. And you know, you read that, you know, my memory verse for today, note the kindness of God. All right, let's go. That's it. Close your Bibles. I just love kindness. And so you spend your whole life and you're like, oh, kindness is so, kindness is so great. So let's, let's just have a God that's kind and he never gets in a bad mood. All right, because we look at the other half, the severity of God, and like, I guess he woke up on the wrong side of the bed that day. Am I right? No, friends, because if you don't have the severity, then you don't have the kindness. The gospel necessitates both. God is both kind and severe. Kindness wouldn't be so kind if there wasn't severity in dealing with evil, and that's the truth. To deny the severity of God is to deny the reality of evil. And we all know you cannot do that and still maintain reason. 
It is never kind to allow evil to hurt people. Yet that is what many think the grace of God must allow in our era. And that is anti-gospel. There is no grace or truth in such a notion. God is severe against evil and sin, and that is part of His kindness. He will pour His eternal wrath on evil and even uses it as a judgment against the sinners themselves. What do Joshua 11 and 12 ultimately show us? shows us God's judgment against evil. We must trust that through the lens of the gospel that these were unrepentant sinners deserving of such a fate. If that's the fate God brought towards them, that is what they justly deserved. But what does Romans 11.23 reveal? And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. He's specifically speaking of the nation of Israel, but here's the deal. How do you think you got into the kingdom of God? God grafted you in when you didn't deserve There came a point in your life where you refused to continue in your unbelief. And at that moment, you experienced the kindness of God because of the severity that he poured out on his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. You cannot have either or. It requires both. When sinners repent of their unbelief, God will always add them to his people. Christians proclaim a gospel as clear as Joshua 11 and 12. Note both the kindness and severity of God, gracious to those with faith, harsh to those who refuse to repent. A few application points this morning. Worship the God revealed in all of Scripture, not just the God that you are comfortable with based on your preferences. Worship Him for all that He is, or the reality is you're not worshiping Him at all. Secondly, rejoice in the sovereignty of God. Rejoice in it. You struggle to understand it? Rejoice in that. He does. Thirdly, trust the judgment of God. He's wiser than you and I. And fourthly, tell the truth of both the kindness and severity of God so that people will believe. 